This is the Stories of Transformation podcast, and I'm your host, Bakhtar Shahadi. Each week, I dive into deep conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardship, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to expand perspectives and share voices of diverse identities. In one of Netflix's most highly watched documentaries of all time, The Social Dilemma, which was co-directed by Jeff Orlowski, exposes the disturbing extent to which all of us are being manipulated and controlled through the use of social media. The film was a huge wake-up call for everyone realizing the insidious implications of social media on our democracy, our culture, and our overall mental health. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we discuss why Jeff wanted to make this film, how exactly social media is a threat to our democracy, how the film has begun to influence policymakers, and what we can do as individuals to protect ourselves and future generations. Jeff also shares how he got into filmmaking and the struggles associated with making independent films. Throughout his professional career as a filmmaker, Jeff has served as director, producer, and cinematographer of the Sundance award-winning films Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral. He is a two-time Emmy award-winning filmmaker and founder of the award-winning production company Exposure Labs. His latest film, which we spend a lot of time talking about, The Social Dilemma, premiered at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival and is now one of the most watched documentaries streaming on Netflix. I truly enjoyed this conversation with Jeff, and I hope you do too. And if you get a chance, please share this conversation far and wide. So without further delay, I bring you Jeff Orlowski. Jeff Orlowski, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I am great. Thanks so much, Bakdash. It's, it's been such a long time since we spoke, and I'm thrilled for this. Yeah, yeah, it has been a while, and uh, I too am delighted to be in conversation with you and to hear what you've been up to since you and I last kind of spoke and see what's on the top of your mind. But what I'd like to do to start this conversation, Jeff, is to ask you, how would you go about defining who you are? <laughs> of course, you have to start off with a hard one. I would like to think of myself as somebody who is using their time and opportunity and privilege to make a difference. And I do that through film and hopefully just through my daily actions and living life and in my relationships and in the influence or the mentorship of others and trying to cultivate that in others as well. I think that's the best I got for you today, but that, that would be um, aspirational uh, to call that out as well. It's a constant practice, I, I, I suspect, but that's, that's what I would like to keep striving for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In some sense, it brings up the idea of like us all being a work in progress or you being a work in progress. And you're always kind of fine tuning the person that you're, that you want to be. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's talk about your craft of filmmaking. How did you find your craft of filmmaking? How did you go about realizing that this was the thing that you wanted to do with your life? Yeah. I was very interested in photography and I was not very interested in filmmaking. And one of my best friends from college twisted my arm and made me take a filmmaking workshop. And was, I was reluctant at the time. So my background in photography was around photojournalism. It was documenting other events that happened. I grew up with a darkroom in my house. My dad taught me black and white photography when I was in junior high school. I graduated high school in 2002. So even in high school, when I was working on the school newspaper, we started with film cameras. And then by my senior year, when I was editor-in-chief of our school paper, 
I was getting digital cameras onto our team. Like that was like a huge revolutionary new thing. Like we can really make our journalism go faster with these fancy new digital cameras. But it was always around capturing something else that somebody else was doing and not really setting up my own thing or not really voicing my own thoughts. And so when I was in college and, a, and my friend Jack was encouraging me to get into film, I didn't feel like I had anything that I wanted to say or that I needed to say. I didn't have a script. I didn't have a story. And it was the Stanford Film Society and it was a student-run film workshop. And I had the good fortune where a bunch of the other filmmakers had projects that they wanted to do. And I got to basically just tag along and do cinematography for an extra project and be involved in the crew on a whole bunch of different teams. And it was through that workshop that I saw the potential of film. It was, I mean, honestly, it, we did that workshop every weekend. We're busting long hours just trying to make everybody's movie as good as possible. And at the end of that semester, we had a screening where everybody got to share their movies. And we packed an auditorium and people sat and paid attention for an hour and a half to all these short films. And it was, it was like such a really, really special thing. And I, I think that's what sort of got me hooked was realizing you can put your time into making something that once you make it, it could go out there, it could scale, it could be seen, it could be seen by millions of people, it can be seen over and over and over again. And it was just a really, really powerful experience. Yeah, yeah, totally. Now, what I'd love to do, Jeff, is to talk to you about and get your insight on what it's like to have other people watch your film as you're watching them. Meaning, you know, tell me what it's like for you to watch the impact that your films have on people as you watch them in the audience, uh, right? So tell me, how often does that happen? Do you do that with every film? And most importantly, what's that like for you? That's something we do all the time. In particular, we do that before the film is released. That's the best time to do it. <laughs> so there's always this phase where we do test screenings. And when we do a test screening of the film... These are rough cuts of the movie or sometimes fine cuts. Sometimes they have temporary animation. Sometimes they are just really incomplete. You know, usually temporary music, temporary audio. But it's a proof of concept in many ways. And you show it to an audience. And the most valuable thing I find is watching the audience watch the movie. You can see when people are just captivated and engaged and they're hanging on to every single word. Or you can see where everybody's sort of drifting and adjusting their seat and their position and somebody checks their phone or whatever else. And there's that whole spectrum where it really gives you the sense of, okay, is this scene, is this section in the film doing what I want it to do? Is it landing? Is it conveying the ideas? Do people look confused? Or is it clear? And we, we go through that process, and then, of course, we, we have a conversation afterwards, and we learn what stuck, what didn't stick, what people found interesting, where they drifted. And we use that process over weeks and weeks and weeks or months and months to make the film better and better. So that, hopefully, when you release the movie or at, you're at the film festival, you already know how people are going to respond. There's still nervousness. You're always anxious. It's, it's usually the first time that the finished version is being played. But you, you have that opportunity to then go in with a little bit more comfort. But to the heart of your question, those transformational moments, I think that's what you're trying to build for, right? You're trying to set up this structure and this flow, whether you're sort of planting breadcrumbs for the audience so that a later idea hits really hard and crystallizes. 
I mean, that's usually the structure of a film. A three-act structure is building towards the climax. And you need to explain certain ideas and you need to teach certain practices or vocabulary or concepts for it all to make sense. And, um, and hopefully you can do that well such that everything in the film lands in the way that you were intending. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And so to play off of that, Jeff, has there been a film that you've made or been a part of, whether it's been frame by frame, the social dilemma of chasing ice or chasing coral that it had, that has had, uh, an unintended consequence than the one you anticipated? If so, which film is that? It's a great question. My immediate instinct goes to both stories around chasing ice, but then also around the social dilemma. But for chasing ice in particular, there was a long period where the film was not getting into film festivals. We were getting rejected from film festivals. At the start of that project, it was a very small team. Myself, our producers, Paula and Jerry, we raised a little bit of funding. We brought on a writer, Mark Monroe. I started editing myself with support from that whole team. And we got to a place where we started submitting to the festivals and we got kept getting turned down. Rejected from Sundance, Tribeca, South by Southwest, LA, San Fran, like all of the festivals rejected the film. And the film wasn't good enough yet. And um, we did a kind of realignment. We circled back as a team. We stopped submitting to film festivals. We did a deconstruction of the whole story. We ripped it apart, put it back together. We brought on an editor, Davis Coombe. And two years later, we resubmitted to Sundance. And that's the first time the film was accepted into a festival. And it took those two extra years of work for that to happen. And I think this is where my mind went with your question, because with that particular film, we knew that we had an important story. We believed we had an important story. We had visual evidence of climate change as seen through these time lapses of glaciers from all around the world, this this real scientific evidence in a visual package. And yet, because of all the rejection, I think our, we had skepticism about, like, is anybody going to pay attention to it? So when that film came out, and then when we finally started doing our distribution, and it went into movie theaters, and then it started to break records for the theaters that we played at, and it started to scale up more and more, and people started to see it more widely, that's when it was like, okay, wait, we're on to something. People are actually paying attention to this thing that we thought was really important. And, you know, I think you're, you're always struggling, and it's incredibly hard. I mean, independent film is incredibly difficult. Getting distribution is difficult. Fundraising is difficult. But getting it connected to an audience is really, really hard. And how do you make something that does get out there and does get seen and, and people want to watch? And uh, I, I sort of think of it as like, can you make those things that people want to share with their friends, that they want to tell, you know what, dude, I just saw this thing. You have to watch it. If you can get somebody to say that after they see the film, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to spread a little bit more. And so how do you capture those ideas and concepts and keep it scientifically accurate, yet still have that punch in, in the film? Yeah, I really like that. And so in my observation, Jeff, you're making important films about the most important things of our time, whether it's climate change, America's longest war in the context of Afghanistan, understanding what technology is doing to us. How do you go about choosing films to make and or the ideas to pursue behind these films? What is your process like? It's one that takes time. Our team is currently in the phase of thinking through that for future projects. And we've got a very long list of ideas that we like and want to partake in. These films take two to five years to make. 
So one of the easy rubrics is, is this going to be interesting enough and sustain my curiosity and keep me stimulated for five years? Am I going to wake up every day for the next couple of years wanting to jump onto this and wanting to learn more and wanting to explore? And if it doesn't fit that rubric, that's kind of the easiest one. It's like just it's a it's a pass. But separate from that, like our team is thinking through what are the biggest issues of our time? What are the biggest stories? What are the ideas that need transformation? What are the problems that have solutions available to them where we could make change in society? We're constantly refining our own rubric. Like we have all of those things that I just listed, our team is working on and thinking through and adding more prompts. Like, is this is this actually an idea that that is a make or break for if we pull the trigger on a project or not? And if there's, you know, it's really hard when projects come in and you're kind of like, wow, that's really exciting and it's interesting, but is this us? Should we be doing it? Is this the highest purpose? Is this our greatest contribution? And if not, is it something that we should pass on? And so um, those have been a bunch of the the challenges and the thinking around um, how do we make those decisions. Um, and, and fortunately, right now, our team is growing to the size where we can take on a little bit more than in the past. You know, in the past, it was basically one film at a time, and I didn't have the capacity, and our team didn't have the capacity for taking on more. But if we've got the team and the funding available and we could open up more, now it's like, wait a second, like how many projects can we do at the same time and and still um, maintain our deep care for commitment and quality and follow through and upholding the best work that we can make? And what I'd like to do now, Jeff, is talk to you about your latest film, The Social Dilemma. Help me understand, help us understand how you came to realize this was a major issue, uh, how you interest on came to go about making this film and then subsequently what has been the reception of this film i mean it's something that impacts and influences all of us to what extent did you learn that this that this phenomenon of technology and machine learning is really impacting us help us understand what's going on here yeah absolutely in some ways the very first seed of an idea for this project came from eli pariser and a ted talk that he did almost a decade ago, which was called something like Beware the Online Filter Bubbles. And I remember watching that talk and being absolutely blown away by the way algorithms and technology can invisibly shape different people getting different information. And that concept was was planted in my mind, and I remember sharing it with my producer, Larissa Rhodes, and sitting on that but not knowing what to do with it, and years and years and years went by. And in 2017, a friend from Stanford, Tristan Harris, um, who after Stanford had went to start his own company, worked at Google, and I saw him post on Facebook that he was going on to 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper to talk about manipulative design practices at Google. And this was absolutely mind-boggling to me. You know, I at Stanford, I have so many friends who went to work in tech at Google, Facebook, Twitter, etc. That was the path that I was going down for a while before really switching to film. It was something I was incredibly curious about and passionate about, the opportunity that technology has to make life better for millions, billions of people. And this was the first time I heard anybody say, wait a second, there are some downstream consequences to what we have created. And... I had my rose-colored glasses on the whole industry, but when I heard what Tristan was saying, I was like, wow, this is a systemic challenge. Like, he's talking about 
the way the platforms are designed. This is not something that goes away quickly or easily. And it was something that I felt like there was a need and an opportunity to, to explore. And so over several months, um, I was talking with Tristan, other friends, friends of Tristan's, trying to find out, like, is he onto something? Like, is there something here? Is there something worth exploring? And I remember I went to my producer, Larissa, and I was like, I think I need to do a film on social media. And she, her response was something to the effect of, what's wrong with you? Like, it was like, climate change is getting worse and worse. And you want to talk about likes? Like, what? She could not see it at, at the start. And in some ways, I, I look at Larissa as my um, as my personal doubt club. Uh, this is a this is a reference that Tristan and some friends have around. Like, I want to hear the skepticism of the ideas. I want to hear the pushback, and that's going to make the ideas better. And um, so I shared this with Larissa, and it went back and forth for months around like, is this worth doing? And um, finally, she kind of came around to it as we started learning more and more. Tristan actually referenced it as a climate change of culture. I think that's what got to Larissa's heart was this notion that, wait a second, you know, the burning of fossil fuels is changing our planet at a systems-wide planetary scale. And this new business model, this surveillance capitalism and surveillance advertising that Google and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube all practice, that's actually changing our information ecosystem at scale. The way we as the public see and receive information, what we think about the world, is changing invisibly, kind of hiding in plain sight in some weird way. Like, if I do a search for something and if you do a search for something, we might get different results. Like, my Twitter feed looks different than your Twitter feed. We're all in our own individual feeds. There's an analogy here that I've been using lately, um, comparing it to Galapagos Island where if you and I are both on social media, pick your poison, any of the platforms, if you're on it and I'm on it, we're each on our own individual island because we're getting different information. And the more you engage, the more the machine learning algorithm evolves to you. It's as if my island and your island are drifting in the ocean. And maybe we're drifting together because we have a lot of similar ideas or thoughts, but we're, we're still drifting, but we're drifting in kind of the same direction. But we don't see the other people on the other side where their islands are drifting in the opposite direction. And the biggest worry that I have, um, continuing this analogy and this, this evolution metaphor, this is how when, when we have um, physical drift, that is how you get different species. Like, literally all species on the planet have come from this sort of physical separation. And speciation is the practice where one bird can then become two different species and that continues over time. What I'm really worried about is speciation of thought. That ideas in society are going to drift to the point where they are no longer compatible. If you think about taking people on the far left and on the far right and letting them engage in a conversation that usually isn't going to go very well and it's not going to go very far, right? There's no shared language. There's no shared vocabulary. There's no shared understanding of the world. I have had conversations with flat earthers in this process and it's pretty hard to wrap your head around like, wait a second, like where, how do you believe that the earth is flat and what are your arguments for that and what 
science are you referencing? And and then it takes so much work for me to like find the science to demonstrate, well, wait a second, no, that idea you have is actually proven wrong by this and this and this. Um, it's the same thing with talking with climate deniers. I mean, that's been a huge challenge. Um, and that's, I think, where I, I got into this in a big way with Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral was around like engaging with climate skepticism and trying to show evidence and facts around what's actually happening. If we're all going down this path, if we're all sort of drifting in our own directions, it's going to be impossible for us to engage as a society and have a shared conversation. I guess just one last part of your question that you're posing around the the response to the film, it's become one of Netflix's most highly watched documentaries of all time. The numbers have been through the roof. Uh, the, The response to the film has been amazing. It was massively overwhelming when the film came out. And just trying to keep up with the interest and the the desire for conversation around the topic. So it's it's been an incredible response. I think people are really thinking about the issue in a different way. And hopefully we've been able to use the film to sort of shine a light on a problem that in, in many cases people didn't even think was a problem. And and how do we use our tools and skills as storytellers to to help clarify that? Right. Right. And you guys shed light on this deeply important topic that's really affecting everybody in the world right now, right? Anybody who has a, who has a cell phone and a social media app on their phone, uh, they're being influenced. Whether they like it or not, whether they believe it or not, they're being influenced. I think it's fair to say that human beings realize that their data is being sold to advertisers and it's done so for revenue. But what people don't realize is how quite literally information is being curated to be fed to them. And that is influencing how we think about the world, how we understand each other, and how we're in relationship with each other. So Jeff, what's the path forward if these technologies are causing us to be more divisive, where we can't essentially agree on the facts? How do we come together? How do we basically start a dialogue about what's going on? The path forward is a challenging one. And it's challenging in large part because so many people are on these platforms. You know, these are designed to be addictive. They literally have been reverse engineered for each and every one of us. So, of course, you're going to like what it shows you. It literally is showing you pretty much all the content in the world and finding the things that you like and just giving you more of the things that you like. I was very heavily addicted to Facebook. I I mean, I would go down YouTube rabbit holes for hours and hours on end. But now... I don't engage with these platforms that use an algorithmic feed to show me content to keep me scrolling. That's not how I want to engage. That's not how I want to use my time. I am intentional with what I'm seeking out, the information that I'm reading. And, you know, if YouTube shows me a recommendation, I, I really avoid it. That's my goal and objective. I'll still watch a video on YouTube, but I don't want to fall into that rabbit hole for those same reasons, for the same fear. Like, I don't want, to, I don't want my island to drift in any direction. I guess that's that's sort of how I think of it. I get my news through news platforms. I pay them. I pay subscriptions um, because I want to encourage and support all of that. So I, I engage with friends and family on FaceTime and Zoom calls and phone calls and text messages. I use Signal. You know, you can have messaging and you can have connection with people without being sort of a, a victim or handcuffed to the platforms. And so you can really separate those things out. And that's been one of the big practices for me is recognizing, is this technology actually serving me? Is it designed to serve me? Is it designed to benefit me? You know, Zoom is a great technology. We, we've been all using it all year long. 
many of us pay for an account so that it is helping provide better services for us, the public, the users. Um, that's very different than the way social media is designed. Now, as you've kind of done this deep dive, Jeff, into understanding how these tech platforms are monetizing, how they're implementing their algorithms to essentially feed us the things that we think we want, what are some things that you know are being done as a way to kind of engage these technology platforms, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Google, even Netflix? Like, How do we go about, as a society, kind of letting them know, are there policymakers that are essentially taking the step to kind of engage them and say, listen, you guys need to change your algorithm based on the election results, based on how this country is kind of being divided? Like, help me understand how that's taking place as a matter of a political discourse. We've had the amazing opportunity and privilege to talk to many policymakers since this film has come out. It's been kind of mind-blowing. I think we're sort of at the stage still of just educating those policymakers. And they are catching up very, very quickly. They're starting to see the consequences. More than anything, I think January 6th was a huge wake-up call for policymakers. A lot of policymakers are very concerned about the impacts on teenagers, teen mental health and wellness, and framing it as a public health issue. That has been a really, really top priority. Many policymakers are seeing it as a place where misinformation is going viral and running rampant. That's been very explicit with COVID in particular, as well as online hate, digital hate going viral. These have been just a couple of the places, uh, a couple of the areas that policymakers seem to be really focusing on. There's conversation around pushing against the business model itself, conversations around Section 230 reform. There's a lot coming out of Europe and opportunity and excitement with European legislators. I think that might actually be one of the first places where we see real action coming out of, coming out of the EU. There's some conversations around holding these companies accountable for their algorithms, why is it that a private company should have a private algorithm that could dictate what information the president of the United sees every day, and nobody has insider access into how that algorithm operates or why it's choosing what it's choosing? There's a brilliant book called Algorithms of Oppression, written by Sophia Noble, that really talks about how algorithms can perpetuate bias, racial bias in the algorithms. The algorithms are only as good as the data that you put into it. So if the data is racist, the outcomes are racist. So these are, these are just, uh, just a handful of the places of where people are talking. And one of the challenging things is that this area is so complex. It's so nuanced. There are so many issues here. Um, it was really challenging for us when we started making the film to think through all of it. And it's very challenging for policymakers to sort of rein in, well, what should we do and how do we regulate these companies? They have been completely unregulated for decades now. And in some ways, it's allowed them to grow as fast as they have. But this is not the inevitable march of progress. This is not an inevitable type of technology that we have right now. Just like fossil fuels, fossil fuels are causing great harm to civilization. And we know that we need to move away from the fossil fuel extractive business model. We can still have energy. We can still do the things that we want to do without the consequences of climate change. That's the same parallel that we're seeing now with our technology companies. Like we can have technology that provides meaningful social connection, right? Just doing a call on Zoom or FaceTime, there are countless ways that we can have that. But without the negative impacts of this extractive advertising-based, surveillance-based business model that we now know and we now see all of these consequences that are coming out of that system. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's right. And so 
with that said, Jeff, what are your thoughts of people who are paying attention? How is it that they can better understand who they are relative and or in relationship with these technologies? Meaning, what is it that they can do specifically to kind of realize how much they're being influenced, if they're being influenced, to what extent they're being influenced? Like, what is it something that people could do on a daily basis to kind of make that stand? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a, it's a tricky one. But the thing that I would encourage is there somebody in your life that you disagree with politically where you've had a really, you know, hard set of conversations or maybe you just kind of avoid those conversations in general? Do a social media swap with that person. Show them your social media feed and you look at their social media feed and just spend a day in their shoes and look at and reflect on wow, this is what this friend of mine is seeing every single day. No wonder they think the way that they do Mm -hmm. and reflect on your own stance. They're going to think that same thing about you because no wonder you think the way that you do. Can that experience, can that reality swap be an opportunity for a bridge to then see and get closer to building empathy, building bridges and building empathy? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's ultimately what I think we need to do. That's what storytelling and filmmaking strives to do. That's what our impact campaigns strive to do. We're not going to get through society's challenges if we all disagree with each other and if we have no real means or tools to come together and work together. One of the challenges that I'm sensing and feeling within our American political system is that the opportunity for compromise is becoming slimmer and slimmer. Mm. That we are feeling and seeing and sensing polarization on both sides of the aisle in such a way that it, it seems more and more impossible for the left and the right to come together and agree on anything that's going to move us forward. What does democracy look like if that's the case, right? It's just going to become more and more of an extreme pendulum where, you know, maybe some years, you know, one party has all the power and can push things through and force it through. And then the pendulum swings back the other way. And it's just going to amplify on both sides of the equation. And we're never going to do meaningful things that our entire society actually agrees with. You know, these these platforms, Twitter in particular, but, um, you know, all of these algorithms, the way I look at them is that they kind of identify an issue and they put a crack in it because it's better to have two clear black and white sides of the story rather than the gray zone and the nuance. Twitter is not a platform for nuance. It decontextualizes everything. Like, that's the strength of, of Twitter in some ways. It's like the most pithy, shortened version that is going to rile up your emotions is a thing that you're going to want to retweet. And I don't think that's good for a functioning democracy. I, I fundamentally believe that these social media platforms with these style and design of algorithms are incompatible with a quality, healthy, functioning democracy. I can't agree more. I mean, this past year in particular, this last election has taught us that quite literally people are living in different realities. Right. People aren't even able to come together and agree on the same facts. Right. And that makes conversation, that makes dialogue, that makes really, that really takes, that makes engagement so difficult. And so, so I'm just kind of curious to know how this is all going to play out and to what extent this is going to end up hurting us. I am totally frightened about that. You know, we're only a decade plus into this experiment of social media, like restructuring our information landscape. 
And what does the next decade look like, right? <laughs> it's not like January 6th was was the, you know, the only time that's going to happen. Yeah. Like this is yeah. happening internationally in countless examples in countless countries where we just don't see it as much here in the United States. It's not our front page headlines. But these platforms have worked their way all around the planet and and the consequences that are coming out of them are dire. Mm-hmm. And this along with climate change, in my mind these are some of the biggest issues that we're dealing with as a society. Yeah. And your films are a testament to that and 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 for those listening, please go out and see Jeff's films, Chasing Eyes, Chasing Coral, Social Dilemma. They're all fantastically important as it pertains to understanding who we are as human beings and how we're in relationship with each other and how we're in relationship with the world. Mm. And so, Jeff, as you kind of as we kind of come to a close here, uh, how would you go about answering the question, you know, what is your message for the world? Hmm. <laughs> oh, great question. Despite all of the, the conversation that we just had, I am very optimistic about the future. My optimism does come to some degree from my pessimism, and I do believe things are going to get worse before they get better. But the question and the challenge there is how bad is it going to get? How much worse is it going to get? And how long will it take us to turn the ship around? But I do believe that we have the ability, the tools, and the desire, and the passion to be able to make these changes in our society to build a better future together, to build the future that we want, uh, that we want for ourselves and for our kids and for the next seven generations. And those opportunities exist we aren't necessarily acting with that in mind all the time. And I think it's going to take both the activism from the public and the desire from the public, as well as changes in policy, meaningful, real, tangible changes in policy, certainly on the climate front, certainly on the environmental front, and certainly with regards to our technology and the way information is distributed. We need to be making our decisions off of quality, accurate, good scientific information. We can't be making our decisions as a society based on conjecture and speculation and, you know, just manipulative influence and who's trying to dominate the the power in the conversation because it benefits them financially or politically, right? We need to, we need to shift these systems and I am hopeful and optimistic that that will happen, but it takes all of us doing it. It takes all of us taking part and contributing and getting involved and no matter what issue you care about. Um, these issues all t- tie together with the social dilemma. I think that was one of our big realizations was it really doesn't matter what issue you care about, that issue is being polarized and ripped apart because of the way the technology is designed. So how do we use this awareness and make the changes that we need to see for that society that we want? Mm-hmm. Jeff Orlowski, thank you for your time. Thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for being the light in the darkness, sir. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for joining the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced and hosted by me, Bakhtash Ahadi. Audio engineering by Joe Jemmy. Digital marketing and assets by Dana Drahos and Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashita Ahadi. And theme music by Kais Esaud. If you enjoy the content that we're sharing here at the Stories of Transformation podcast, you can help us spread our message and our content far and wide by telling your friends and your family, as well as leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. We're grateful for your support, and on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. As always, do good and be well wherever you are in the world. All right, that's all I got for now. Until next time.